For you, the listeners of Ruby Rogues, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, uh, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of My Ruby Story. This week, we're talking to Aaron Shaw. Aaron, do you want to say hello? Hello. Now, uh, you were on episode 273. Uh, you talked about contempt culture. I remember reading a blog post, I think, by that same title or hearing a, a conference talk. Um, yeah, the everything kind of kicked off with that one original blog post, uh, which you probably which you just mentioned that you've read. Um, I've given a couple of conference talks since then, kind of touching on the themes and expanding on them. Cool. Well, this show's a little bit different. We typically talk more about people's story, how they got into coding, how they got into uh, Ruby or whatever they are doing now. And so uh, I, I've been doing this with all of our past episodes of Ruby Rogues. So we'll we'll dive in and we'll get your story, which I'm sure is fascinating. I was going to say uh, it is a just long and twisty story, but I think that covers most developer stories. Yep, absolutely. And uh, the long and twisty ones are the best ones. I, I usually have to dig a little deeper when people have like a computer science degree or something, you know, to kind of get the the nuances of of what makes them tick. So um, I did not go down the computer science route, so it's a bit more a bit more visible, I think. Awesome. So how did you get into programming then? Oh, okay. So that was something like 17 years ago now, 18 uh -huh. years. It has been a while. Um, and I kind of got into programming because um, originally I was like really into the game dev scene in uh, just online uh, doing uh, 3D art, not the programming side of things. Okay. Um, but growing up in Canada, uh, if you didn't have a degree or you couldn't get anywhere because there wasn't really many opportunities for juniors. The Canadian game dev scene hadn't really happened yet. Uh -huh. um, and due to a variety of circumstances, uh, I wasn't able to get into a degree program to uh, move my art forward. Um, so I still needed something to do. I ended up doing um, some contracting and working with, and this dates me so hard. Uh, <laughs> but does anyone else remember things like Matt's script archive? Like this, this was a thing in 97 and onwards. Um, uh, so just taking stuff from that, modifying it and kind of working with a couple of clients to deploy early web stuff. Uh -huh. um, and that's just kind of how I got started. And this was all with Perl uh, way back in the day. Ah, oh, the good old days. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that makes you that old. Um, but I, I won't Some, ask. <laughs> sometimes I feel that old. Uh, there's just been so much that's happened since then like this predates rails um, yep. sort of going back yep absolutely so uh you get in you start doing this work for clients with pearl and 
uh, you know, Matt's uh, scripting and, and all this stuff. I, I, for, I forgot the name of the, the website already, but yeah, I remember. Matt's script archive. That's right. Um, I'm pretty sure I pulled stuff off of there too, but anyway. I think we all did really. It's like yeah. the GitHub before SourceForge. It's the SourceForge before SourceForge. Yep, absolutely. But anyway, um, so you get in, you start doing programming. What was it that made it kind of click for you? Was it just, oh, I can make money at this or was there something you really enjoyed about it? Um, so it really like just made it something more than a way to make money was, uh-huh. um, I ended up in this tiny little IRC community. I think there were six of us and, uh, someone else in the community was going through her, um, I think master's degree at the time, uh, in computer science. And she was talking a lot about writing her own language. Um, and this, so this was a part of her master's program, um, her thesis, so talking about writing her own language, and I was fascinated this idea. So everything I'd done up to that point was tiny little website things. Uh, so I sat down and I was able to spend six months. It took six months to like implement my own tiny, not very good, really slow, didn't even implement, um, didn't even implement loops, lispy thing. Uh, and it was great fun. It taught me so much about how to program and how to think about programming and like how programs even work. That was what really caught it for me was that little moment. Well, little six months long moment of just learning that thing. Nice. So uh, from there, uh, I don't know a, a whole lot about your background. I know Sam did the interview and he, you know, he knows you a lot better than I do. Um, but just doing a little bit of research, it looks like most of your work is in Python or Java or JavaScript. Um, have you done much Ruby? Um, I have done not a lot of Ruby. Um, back in, uh, must have been 2013, I'd kind of started to move in the Ruby direction. Uh, the company I was working for at the time was starting to move um, a lot of their internal infrastructure work from uh, Perl that had been written in about 2000. Uh, onto more modern Ruby stacks and using a lot of Puppet. And um, so I was moving in that direction. Uh, unfortunately, when I left that company, a lot of the things I was doing in Ruby um, kind of evaporated. And as I moved down that DevOps track, writing software has become less and less relevant to what I'm doing. Right. Um, most of what I do now is Python for Lambdas versus writing uh, actual web backends. Oh, really cool. Yeah, we will get to what you're working on because I'm I'm really curious to see where you're at. Um, what what do you think of when you think of the things that you've accomplished or the things that you're most proud of in your career? I mean, it could be JavaScript or Python or Java or Ruby or whatever. Um, but but what are the things that kind of stand out to you as far as hey, this is the thing I did? And the reason I ask this is because sometimes people, you know, like we talked about the contempt culture uh, talks and blog posts and things like that. And some people I'm like, oh, you did this thing and that thing you're well known for. You know, what's your what what are the accomplishments you want to talk about? And they talk about some little library that they wrote that that nobody knows about. And so I'm I'm always curious to see, okay, what's that thing? What's that thing that just, you know, stands out to you as the thing that you're really most proud of? Oh, geez, that's a hard question. Uh, Let me think about that for a second. I mean, obviously, the contempt culture thing is like the prominent thing that everyone is starting to know me for. And that's really awesome. That feels like a good contribution to trying to change the dialogue within tech, um, give us um, a broader base of understanding what we're all trying to achieve. Right. But like, what do I feel like my accomplishments are? Um, I, 
Um, I was working on at a company uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Catalyst IT here in Wellington, uh-huh. and um, I helped bring up an OpenStack cloud, and that's the first um, cloud instance in New Zealand. Oh, cool! So I was a part of that, and that's that's actually really cool for me. Um, I've been one of the biggest proponents of SaltStack, which is uh, uh, kind of one of the lesser known uh, automation tools within the DevOps sphere. Um, I was one of the biggest proponents of that in New Zealand. But again, this just feels like a really cool accomplishment. Um, oh, what else? I'm, I'm curious. It seems like both of these things are, are more in sort of the ops DevOps space. Um, I know a few people that work at SaltStack because their main office is not far from where I live. But yeah, it, it, often when we talk about code, we're not talking about those ends of things. And it's interesting because, you know, we, we can't really operate without them either. So that's that's really why kind of DevOps has been such a thing for me and been the dominant focus of the last, I think, five or six years of my career um, is that that instant realization when I first encountered Puppet that without like the rest of programming, we're not even running our software right. until it's in production. We have never seen our software run. Mm-hmm. Um, and just seeing that and seeing like the, the entire holistic view and the ability to do really interesting distributed programming, because that's a lot of what DevOps is. This right. is distributed programming, which is fascinating. I couldn't do that until I'd encountered this. Um, so when I talk about the achievements like I'm most proud of that most like really resonate with me, it's those. Right. But there's also things like there's a a global thing uh, called Startup Weekend, mm-hmm. which you may have heard of. Um, I don't know. Yeah, they, they've had but, some events here, I think. Right. Um, so there was one in Wellington that ran a few years ago, and uh, the team I was on won. And a lot of the reason we won was because we had Ruby. And so we built our little backend in in Sinatra and we used OmniAuth and just like all of these little pieces like fit together so well. So that's one of the programming achievements I'm also quite proud of. And that's a very specific programming achievement. Um, And then, you know, dominantly I've been a Python programmer and the inability to find anything like OmniAuth in the Python community and I've given lightning talks about this, it has been an endless source of frustration for me. <laughs> I mean, the ideas sense. exist. Yeah. Whiskey exists, um, which is kind of like rack, but like that broad scope of we have all the integrations and all the providers, that doesn't exist. That makes sense. So what's what's the payoff for you then with all of these different things that you've worked on? Is it having accomplished something hard? Is it working with other people? Is it other aspects of of coding or DevOps or, or other areas that that really kind of give you that that payoff that make you enjoy what you do? There was a quote that Scott McNeely gave at a Python or Postgres conference I was at in I think '09, mm-hmm. which was. I'd have to look up the exact quote, but he said something like, we are defining the language of the future. And that, I think, defines most or everything about why I keep doing what I'm doing is we are laying these foundations. We are making the future possible in so many ways. We guide that narrative. And this was specifically talking about open source and free software, but it extends beyond that. It extends into 
almost everything we do as people working in technology, we do that. And that, just remembering that, knowing that, is, I think, in many ways, the defining feature of why I keep, go- why I keep doing this. That's cool. And, and it's an interesting way to think about it. Because in a lot of ways, we really are. I mean, there are words that come out of technology that, you know, are just words. I mean, my kids won't know any different. And we didn't have them when I was a kid. And, you know, the same thing within our programming culture. You know, we find new problems and solve them and talk about programming differently after that. We do. Um, We look at Rails and how it changed everything about developing websites, how much it enabled. We look at Node.js and how much that's changing developing. We look at JavaScript, the initial JavaScript frameworks, Prototype and Dojo. I think it was Dojo. Yeah, Dojo's been around for a long time. And YUI and Mm -hmm. um, Underscore, I think was one. And jQuery. JQuery. We we redefined what JavaScript meant. And I say we as in the entire community. I had nothing to do with this. Right. Um, But that's what we've done. And this has been so enabling for everyone. We have made these things and then they've just broadened everything and given these powers to people that never had them before. Yep. Absolutely. So I I do want to talk a little bit about the contempt culture um, stuff that you've done. I know we did a whole episode on it and so people can go listen to that. Um, But really briefly, do you want to just explain where it came from and, um, Kind of give us the story of that, how it evolved and um, where it has taken you. So, like, the blog post was kind of a rant. Um, Those are the best Because ones. they are the best ones. I was quite angry when I wrote it because I had just had yet another argument on Twitter. It's always Twitter. I had yet another <laughs> argument on That's Twitter. So <laughs> oh, Twitter. Um, about... PHP, of all things. And somebody I knew was um, bashing PHP. Um, and I'm, I get annoyed at this, and I got annoyed at this, because I got called on doing the same thing in 2012 by somebody I really respect. Um, and she said, hey, when you do this thing, you are bashing people's backgrounds that aren't yours. Mm-hmm. So I came into dev because I learned Perl. Um, I had access to Matt's script archive. But Perl was, at the time a blessed language. If you knew Perl, you were quote-unquote real. PHP has never been considered a real language. Um, So if I came in through PHP by doing WordPress dev, which would have been a great path to come through, WordPress is excellent, Mm -hmm. I would have been considered unreal or less important. Um, So doing that creates artificial barriers. uh, And that's really where contempt culture and like the idea came from, was this person saying, hey, what are the implications of what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and starting to think through those implications like drove contempt culture and got me starting down that path. And then three years later, the blog post came out. Huh. That's interesting. I had a, um, a somewhat similar experience of uh, one of my neighbors really into Laravel. And I kept thinking to myself, oh, I'm going to make his life better and introduce him to Rails. Well, it turns out that all the stuff he likes about Laravel makes his life good. And I just had never considered, oh, well, you know, and it's PHP. That that was where my uh, hubris came from was, well, Ruby's better than PHP. So 
And we've all had that hubris. I remember when Rails came out and I was in the uh, the Postgres community at the time, and we were so bad about Rails because the first uh-huh. couple of versions, Active Record didn't do things we considered, quote unquote, good. Right. Like uh, in database constraint. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, in database constraints. So we considered it terrible that Active Record was doing that in app. But it, that didn't matter. It really didn't matter that that Rails was. Absolutely. So how how has being sort of known for this changed your your career or your perspective on coding? Um, I mean, there's so many ways it's changed my career um, and just like how I think about problems and how I approach problems. Uh, in career terms, um, I started a business doing DevOps. And a lot of what I focus on now is the cultural side of DevOps. Um, and this touches back on the idea that we haven't run our code until it's in production. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that mean? That means, like, what are implications? It's always about the implications. The implications of that are that if there's an artificial barrier between a developer and an operations person, how will I know how my program runs? How will I know if I've done my job? How will I know if the problem is solved? And I won't. So understanding that has changed everything I do about writing software because now I have to think about what does the documentation need to look like? When do I need to involve these other people? I'm not just a programmer or on a team of programmers. I'm on a team that constitutes everything from uh, initial design all the way through QA and like long-term support. And I can't ignore that anymore. Right. Um, It's also like there's some parts that make me a bit nervous. Um, there's a lot of like ingrained sexism in tech where if you're not talking about code, you're considered to be not a programmer. And even though I've been a programmer for the last 17 years, uh, as a woman in tech talking about culture things, I often feel like I'm undermining my own technical credibility. Um, and while that hasn't been like a direct effect, I haven't seen it directly yet. It's always in the back of my mind because I see this happen to other prominent women like uh, Alice Goldfuss, who gets her technical credibility undermined because she'll post selfies or or just Fraz for the same reasons. Mm. Um, so this is a thing that I'm cognizant of possibly happening, and this is a thing I worry about. I, I think that's interesting. And, and the examples, you know, posting a selfie. I, I think in a lot of ways we do... Um, put ourselves in a position where we don't allow ourselves to be people too, right? You mentioned if you're not talking about code, you're not real. And yeah, I mean, you know, if I start talking about my kids or I make a dad joke or something on one of the podcasts, you know, it, yeah, it does undermine that a little bit as well. I I don't know. I don't know how it's different for women versus men, but um, it's, you know, it, it happens to all of us to a certain degree, you know, where oh, well, you must not be a real coder because you're not talking about as deep a tech as I am. Exactly. And like this even ties into the PHP stuff. You're not a real coder because, and that is the core of contempt culture, is we are building, you are not real because arbitrary thing that you do or don't know or this action that you take makes you not real, quote unquote. And this is a culture that we've been doing since at least the 1970s. Like, this is old. Mm-hmm. I can draw early examples like uh, the uh, LUSER, loser, derives from MIT. 
like early MIT AI lab, which defined so much of early hacker culture, early uh, free software culture, held end users, like library users in contempt from the beginning. We have done this thing. That's really, really interesting. Um, I'm going to let people go and listen to the episode to to dig more into this. Um, And we may want to just look into having you back on the show at some point to dig into it a little bit further. Um, I am happy to endlessly talk about this. I'm sure. I'm sure. But we we only have a limited amount of time. And I, you know, I want to make sure that we get kind of a wide breadth of things. So what are you working on now? Um, So right now I'm doing um, like client work, and this is often building deployment pipelines and helping them ask um, actually a lot of good information security questions. Um, And I guess that's another one of the things that I consider to be a great technical achievement is understanding how and when to bring InfoSec into the dev process and into the deployment process. Like when, like, let's take encryption as an idea. (laughs) <laughs> we talk about, let's have our secrets encrypted. Don't check them into Git. Mm-hmm. Okay, why? What are we trying to achieve? And what we're trying to achieve is to ensure that an attacker can't pull our secrets. Mm-hmm. But they have to live somewhere. Like, we have to keep them encrypted somewhere. So we decrypt them often when we deploy and we put the, the Rails blob on, on our servers. Mm-hmm. Cool. They're living unencrypted on disk on that instance. So if I break through the app, I have access to unencrypted secrets. That's not great. So what am I trying to achieve? I can't control whether or not they have access to unencrypted secrets, but I can control whether or not I know that they have access to unencrypted secrets. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that, like that second level of implications that we don't necessarily think about. And so that's the sort of thing I'm working on right now is talking more about how do we think about our implications? How do we think about what we're trying to achieve as part of this entire process when we're developing software before we can like answer the question of, are we doing the right thing? Right. That's interesting. That's really fascinating. Because, yeah, I mean, I generally don't think too hard about that stuff. You know, it's, it's yeah, you know, I, I encrypt it. I don't put it in Git. And then, yeah. And, and the, you know, I don't really worry about getting hacked, I guess, until I get hacked. Right. And I mean, you kind of can't sit around worrying about getting hacked all the time. Like, right. like that will just make you stressed and anxious for always. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's always about thinking about those little things of just like, OK, what does this mean if I do this? Right. Um, and if you keep it encrypted and know when it gets decrypted, you kind of can keep it in Git. Mm-hmm. Like uh, InfoSec companies will tell you not to. Um, and ideally, you're using a tool to manage this for you. But right. if you have awareness of decrypts, then you kind of know when you need to rotate secrets, because that's what you care about is I've lost control of this. I need to fix that. Right. Uh, and that's the thing I talk about. And that's the thing we as a culture kind of don't talk about. For I don't actually know why, because it's so important. Well, I think and this is just my opinion and this is your show. so. I don't want to take up too much time, but I think some of it comes back to something you said earlier in that you're on a team that works on the app all the way from the programming up through deployment and hosting and everything else. And I think a lot of times when when we as software developers are building the software, we only focus on the building part and not the rest of it. 
Yeah, that's definitely been a part of it. And I guess a lot of it also is that there's kind of a, a sense, whether or not this is true, the, the cultural attitude that I see is that InfoSec as a community is quite standoffish. Um, and in some ways, this is true. They forked, I guess is the best word, from conventional tech culture sometime in the 80s. So they retain a lot of that really early kind of MIT lab sort of hacker lingo, cultural touchstones sort of thing. And that feels when we've moved in a different way, sometimes anachronistic, sometimes just I don't know how to deal with these people. We don't have a our shared language is far enough back that it's not something I've been taught necessarily. Right. And for anyone who learned like Rails, um, Rails kind of was the I, in a lot of ways the demarcation point. Uh, before that, you were kind of coming in with this sort of real programmer, quote unquote, attitude, and Rails broke that mm-hmm. in so many ways. Like Java was starting to break it. Uh, PHP was starting to break it. Rails was, in so many ways, the breaking point. Um, and we saw a generation of programmers coming in that had, quote unquote, real programming experience using a real language, Ruby, for whatever value of real you want to assign. They had to be taken seriously at that level. But they were doing things in a completely different way with a completely different cultural basis. So that culture coming forward and then looking at InfoSec today, it feels really weird to like look at that intersection. And when I learned, I can still, the things I learned from the artifacts I encountered still kept and held some of those older cultural touchstones. So things like the jargon file. If you look at the jargon file, you will see much of how InfoSec culture works in the jargon file. But that's not a common thing anymore. No one knows about the jargon file for good reason. It's very awful in so many ways. But if you're interested in the in the history of it, it's really a fascinating artifact that will highlight those, um, those divergences. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. So uh, you said you run your own company and you, you do this for clients. If people decide that they need your brand of help, you know, help with this kind of uh, infosec and, you know, operations. How do they find you? Um, Mostly everything's been word of mouth so far. Um, Mm -hmm. Wellington and New Zealand as a whole is quite a small, it's quite a small close knit community. So everything's kind of come through that. Um, So going to conferences and talking to talking to people, um, meeting the same people over and over again, because the community is so small, uh, has been really beneficial because I can talk about these things. I can describe what I do and they'll take that and then they'll hear me talk about it again. And there is that reinforcement versus a larger kind of community where you might see me once at a prominent conference and then I kind of disappear from your radar. Mm-hmm. Um, you might follow me on Twitter, but there's um, the sea of noise that is Twitter, especially when there's much um, stronger personalities that exist on Twitter that kind of dominate more of that conversation. Um, so everything's kind of happened in New Zealand and it's, <laughs> it has been all of the fun of running a business. And I <laughs> imagine that you know exactly what I mean by that. Yeah, I have a pretty good idea. <laughs> gotcha. Um, um, but it's been like super rewarding to do it, um, just to get to touch, to touch other people's dev practices and see them light up with new things and new ideas that come out of what I'm asking mm-hmm. and the questions I'm asking. Like It's all about the questions I'm asking. It's never about, oh, you should do this. It's always, what are the implications of doing this? Mm-hmm. 
That's cool. So if people want to hire you, are you available now or? Um, yeah, uh, I have a website and everything. Um, I guess we can put it in the show notes. Yep, absolutely. Why don't you go ahead and read it off too, just so people know where to where to go. Uh, my website is uh, iara.nz. That's E-I-A-R-A dot N-Z. Nice. All right. Well, uh, the last part of the show is the picks, and those are just things you want to shout out about. Do you have some things you want to shout out about? This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. I do. They're all books because, you know, books are awesome. You should read more books. Um, I think one of the the very first things I want to touch on and I want to just call out is The Unwritten Laws of Engineering. This was a book written in the 1940s and updated in about the early 90s. Uh, So read the second edition. Um, And this book talks about how engineering, like the thing that you do that is making a thing, is possibly the least important part of working in an organization doing the thing. Uh, So this book describes, um, basically, you've come out of university or your training program, you know how to do the thing, which is engineering, in kind of a limited way, like you're a junior or just like uh, entry level. Uh, Teaching you how to do engineering as part of this organization, like teaching you the technical part, that's easy. Teaching you how to function in an organization, like who to let know you're doing a thing, how to talk to people, how to manage being on site with a client. Like these are the things it says you'll need to know how to do this. And it's an entire 100 page ish book talking about that. And this was like one of the most formative pieces of literature I read on how to think about your your just place in an organization, your place in this broader system of making things. Um, so I highly recommend this book. Um, the second one I'm reading right now, and I forget the name of the author. Um, she's excellent. Uh, the book is called Technically Wrong. Uh, and this book is talking about, and one of the key things I think the dialogue is starting to center around is um, both like how women are treated in the industry, but much more importantly about the ethics of what we're doing. Um, so we're starting to see things like... Um, things like the way Facebook is being used and Twitter is being used to manage um, information, um, the micro-targeting that's available, um, that's got serious ethical implications. And this book is really talking about what those ethical implications are and how we need to be thinking about them. Um, the, the questions that we should be asking and the answers that we find are our own answers. Um, I'm not going to tell you what answers you should have, but if you follow me on Twitter, I will. (laughs) I mean, Twitter, it's Twitter. Um, 
But it's really focusing on those ethical questions and the fact that we don't talk about ethics nearly enough within the industry. Mm -hmm. um, so I highly recommend this book. It's really been it's really been fascinating. Um, and the third book I want to talk about, uh, and this one we'll probably talk about for five whole minutes or not, um, is a French sociology textbook from the 1960s. Mm -hmm. It's uh, I'm reading the English translation. It's called Distinction, a Judgment of Taste. And this doesn't sound like it intersects with anything I'm doing, but it's really interesting because it's talking about how what we like is determined by our social class. Uh, and in this case, they did a bunch of research and did some statistical modeling and asked good questions about what are these things that you like? Mm -hmm. uh, and the part I'm reading about right now is talking about photography. So if you asked this one group of people, hey, does this thing make a good photograph? They would say, uh, no, it's not. It's not a photograph of anything like it's not a pretty sunset. It's not a, a beautiful woman. It's not a thing that I can identify with. But if you ask this other group, they would say, no, these are not good photo or these are good photographs because they're challenging the aesthetics of what photography can be. So a picture of pebbles. Um, that becomes a photograph that is meaningful to this other group. Mm -hmm. And they and so the book is full of examples like this of how your entire idea of what good taste is, is determined by how you grew up. And th so this is fascinating to me because I'm seeing parallels to how we function in tech. Um, so one of the things it talks about, sorry, I'm going to go on for this for a little while. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, one of the things it talks about is, um, uh, so coming back to that example that I just gave about photography, uh -huh. so that function more on the form of breaking the aesthetic, that's focusing on the form of it, not the, the function of it. And we're starting to see that a little bit in tech. So we can look at communities like, uh, I don't want to pick on Haskell, but Haskell kind of exemplifies this for me of the form of writing the program is more important in some ways than the writing of the program. Uh -huh. So in Ruby, we care about getting results. In Haskell, there's, and this is not like a bad thing. It's merely an is thing. Um, there's a very strong focus on correctness, on form, on um, the implementation details. And that it, while it exists elsewhere, doesn't exist to the same degree. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this book is fascinating because it's starting to highlight that kind of uh, social structure for me. Um, and this, I feel, really ties into the entire um, contempt and uh, segmentation dynamics that we've kind of implemented within tech. Interesting. These all sound like things that I kind of want to dig into. There is just so much interesting in here. And then there's just like other tiny things like debt, the first 5,000 years, which talks about how money happened. And this sounds completely irrelevant, but it's such a good book. Um, just learning about from an anthropological point of view, how money works, how money happened. Um, the common the common belief of uh, it went from barter to money to credit being wrong on an anthropological level, where credit happened first and barter kind of evolves out of money. It's really, really fascinating. Highly recommend it. Yeah, very cool. Well, um, about half of the books I read are political and tick people off, so I try to steer clear of those. Um, I do read quite a bit of fiction, and I'm going to pick a couple of those books. Um, one of the first ones is uh, Ready Player One. I'm just excited for the movie to come out. 
Um, I know that it's not going to be as good as the book because the book was pretty darn good. But it's uh, never as good as the book. It's like the one axiom of movies. Um, I think the Hunger Games movies were better than the books, but generally you're right. Um, I saw the first Hunger Games movie. I haven't seen the other three. Yeah. I think the last one got split. Um, and while it was a good movie, uh, I found it really hard to watch because of the way they did the camera work. So. Oh, fair enough. Yep. So, so yeah, so I'm going to pick that. And then, um, yeah, I've just, uh, one other thing that has kind of come out of this a lot is that it seems like you tend to go out and try and find new things to discover, new ways to think, or at least that that's my impression. And that's really quite an accurate kind of summation of what I'm trying to do right now. Yeah. And to, to be fair, you know, a lot of times I just kind of go the lazy route because I'm tired and I have a lot going on. But, you know, it is really interesting. And I've been doing this more lately over the last month or two is finding people whose views, you know, I, 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 I tend to, how do I say it? So some of the things that I'm looking for are things that diametrically oppose my worldview. And then some of the things are things that just diverge slightly from my worldview and finding, you know, okay, so if we go just a little bit left of where I think I am or a little bit right of where I am, you know, where do, where do I wind up once I hear the argument? And then, you know, yeah, hearing people who think of the world in completely different ways from me. Um, and then having the conversations. So I, I, I really, without having like a concrete, here's a book or here's a, um, you know, a video or something you should watch. I think it's a healthy thing for us all to just kind of look and see, okay, you know, what, what's out there. So like the things you're talking about with this book distinction or, uh, you know, the other books that you picked, you know, they're, they're in realms that I haven't really explored. Right. And just right. Take, taking the time to look at those and go, okay, how does this color my thinking in these areas? What, what does this mean with some of the core beliefs that I hold? And then having the conversations with people and saying, okay, so I read this or I thought about this. I'm still trying to reconcile some of these things. What do you think? And seeing um, where that gets you. Yeah, I agree with this completely. And to be honest, this is kind of the, the uh, introspection loop that DevOps requires mm -hmm. in so many ways. Um, even if only to, in fact, predominantly to understand that your team operates in a certain way. And if you're not going around and asking people why they're doing what they're doing, how they think and understanding that, you don't understand what your team is doing or why. Um, and that extends beyond a team and towards an entire organization or towards an entire like broader group. If you don't understand what's going on and why, mm -hmm. you can't decide, is this what I want to be doing? Because you don't know what you're doing. Yep. Um, and being able to make that decision, that's the key of DevOps in so many ways to me. And that's just not just a DevOps thing. That is a broad scope thing. So I agree completely with what you're saying about kind of getting outside of what you think and why. Mm -hmm. Well, and a lot of the things that we think, I think, are sort of conditioned into us, right? You know, we're exposed to sort of the conclusion without being given a lot of the the background. And... Uh, I agree with that. And just like the information torrent that we're subjected to now um, can make it really overwhelming. Like, I never thought I would be vulnerable to future shock. And I'm kind of looking at the memes now and going, wow, I, I kind of lost track it. I don't even. Uh, it feels weird. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I mean, I can even give you an example of some of this. It's, um, you know, so 
I, I live in Utah, which is a fairly uh, right-wing conservative area, for lack of a better term, if you're familiar with uh, U.S. politics. And, you know, so people around here generally don't accept global warming. And I, I'm not convinced that it's happening. But at the same time, most of that is anecdotal, right? Oh, well, it's colder this year than last year or, you know, different things like that. And in talking to people who are proponents of it, I find that they don't understand the science either. And they've been conditioned in the other way. And so when, when you start really digging into it, it's like, okay, well, what are the actual facts? And I think that's where you have that growth, right? And, and I don't know that either side is completely vindicated. You can't explain it front to back. But I think there are going to be things out there that present evidence for and against. And then you can work through it there. And then you can talk to people that actually do understand the, the reasoning behind the conclusion that they've come to and see if there are things that you've missed. Yep. Um, getting to that introspective loop that um, you're working on right now is, in my experience, been, uh, is actually a really big deal for a lot of people. Um, starting to interrogate what we think and why tends to trigger like anxiety and shame loops in people. Um, this has been my experience talking to people um, because we're all of a sudden confronted with the idea of, have I been wrong this whole time? Mm-hmm. And we've associated wrong with bad. Right. Um, and kind of getting one of the things that I've struggled with is getting from the idea of bad or good to is. Mm-hmm. This is a thing. Bad or good is a morality that I've applied to it post fact. Or, right. Yeah, after the fact. Um, and really the question is, is, just, is this what I want to be? Mm-hmm. Is this what I want to believe? Is this what I really think? Uh, and trying to divorce myself from that. So that introspective loop is, I find, really hard to get to and really excellent that you're getting there. Mm-hmm. Well, and you mentioned anxiety, you know, people cause, causes people anxiety. And that's something that I fight through with a lot of this stuff. Yeah, it's exceedingly anxiety inducing. Like I yeah. talk about this stuff and I say, hey, you're doing dev in a way that has these outcomes. Do you like these outcomes? And that results in a, um, uh, are you calling me a bad dev? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm asking, do you yeah. like these outcomes? Yeah. It's a very different thing. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, that, that wound up being uh, quite the tangent for a pick, but uh, I enjoyed talking through it. Um, one last yeah, thing that I want to ask is if people want to follow you on Twitter or see what you've got on uh, GitHub or, you know, maybe you have a blog out there or things like that. I mean, well, where do people find what you're thinking about these days? Um, predominantly it's on Twitter. Um, that's at Oren, uh, A-U-R-Y-N-N. My GitHub is the same at Oren. You can see my tiny little things and, uh, my bad decisions that I've made like that one time that I did that bad thing, bad quote, unquote. Um, and we're not talking uh, about that bad thing. We're not talking about that bad thing. Um, and my blog would be blog.oren.com. Um, and that's kind of where I talk about video games and uh, cultural things and just random other stuff that's on my mind. All right. Very cool. Well, um, I appreciate you coming on and talking with me for the last 40 minutes or so. Um, Yeah, thank you very much. We're going to go ahead and wrap this up and we'll have another Ruby story for you next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. 